Hi, everybody. It's Dan Sullivan here, and this is the next episode of Exponential Wisdom. And uh, my great pathfinder who goes fearlessly into new territory and brings back news of the future, Peter Diamandis. Hey, Dan. Good to see you, pal. Great to see you today. We were just having a little chat before the recording, and we just came on that the one thing that we may differ in our outlook on the future is I think that the six Ds that you patented. Did you patent that, uh, Peter? Did you get it? No, I mean, I wrote about it in Abundance and Bold, and my next book coming out, Age of Abundance, which will be in mid-24, you know, it's a concept. I didn't trademark it or patent it, but... Yeah, you should. Okay. But Peter created this great thinking tool which is called the 60s, and that is that we live in a world now where virtually everything that moves and will move is being digitized. And the more that you're, what I would say, up to speed with digitization, that's a huge advantage. And then to take a look at the industries that are digitizing fastest, but the evidence isn't quite there yet, and that's deceptive. So mm -hmm. digitize, deceptive. And then the where you'll see it first is that things get demonetized. All of a sudden, somebody emerges. Well, it's actually disruptive. It comes out it's disruptive, first of all. Somebody with a mastery of digitization suddenly drops the cost of things, and it disrupts. They create something that's 10 times better for the same price, and there's a sudden disruption. And the disruption takes place in three forms. One is demonetize, obviously the cost drops, but dematerialize, the size of what you need, the weight of what you need drops, and then it becomes democratized. And that means that it becomes available, not just to a few, but it becomes available to everyone who's after it. How was that? You've been a good student. You did well, my friend. A plus. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did, you know. Yeah, the 60s are coming in strong across the board, across everything. And what I tell entrepreneurs all the time is if you want to really make a dent in your company, your industries, find some part of what you're doing that's not been digitized, not been dematerialized and do that because if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And ultimately, you know, the advantage of demonetizing and dematerializing something is that you can offer it, you know, not just in your neighborhood, but offer it globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the one frame. And I certainly see that, but more and more as I am a bit of a geopolitical junkie and I have been for 50 years of what's happening around the world, my sense is that the six Ds are 100% true in the United States, and people who are directly related to the United States who interact with the U.S. economy, it will happen in lesser degrees with them, but the vast majority of the world, it's not going to happen. So that would be a difference of opinion because the costs of everything are going up around the world simply because the U.S. has decided not to protect the rest of the world, especially trade routes. Hmm. Global trade is 90% on water, okay? So the Chinese miracle has happened because basically the U.S. Navy protected all trade routes going into China and coming out of China, and the United States has decided not to do that. Middle East, for example, the U.S. withdrew their 
they're in there now because of the Israeli situation. Sure. So my sense is that the cost of everything is going to go up around the world in a way that the countries around the world can't really reverse it. But the U.S., because of its grasp of technology, is always going to find new innovations to drop and keep down the cost of money, the cost of energy, the cost of labor, and the cost of transportation. So that's my take on it. All right. You were telling me about what you called melts. You're talking about the future of money. Let's dive into that because I am a huge Bitcoin fan. You know, it's not my major asset holding, but I have a significant percentage of my available cash in Bitcoin. I'm going to have Michael Saylor, who's the Bitcoin maximalist. He is the CEO of MicroStrategies, which has the largest public holding of Bitcoin right now. He'll be speaking at Abundance 360 this year in March of 24. He and I are fraternity brothers together, and he has incredibly strong thesis around Bitcoin that has served him well. If you look at Bitcoin growth over the years, even though it's got its ups and downs, but you know, we were just talking about whether countries start accepting Bitcoin. And it's interesting because a number of nations have started to use Bitcoin as a central currency reserve, if you would, mm -hmm. and making it available at all stores for trading and such. And it is the digitization of money. Mm -hmm. You know, Bitcoin follows the 60s. It's digitized money. In the early days of its growth, it was deceptive because it was basically ignored. And, you know, the price of Bitcoin was micro cents and cents and, you know, individual dollars and so forth. And it's become disruptive. It dematerialized middlemen, dematerialized banks and clearinghouses, it dematerialized physical currency, and it is democratized access. So it is exactly following the 60s, and I don't think there's any slowing it down. So I think, in fact, we're going to see it continue to become an asset class as institutions start to invest in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But you're not a fan. Well, there can only be one reserve currency. That's the whole point of a reserve currency. Okay. You can't have two reserve currencies. There's only one reserve currency because you have to have something that is the most fungible everywhere in the world. And I still do the thousand person test on any competitor to the U.S. dollar. I'll offer you $10,000 right now in U.S. dollars or any alternative. And how many out of the thousand would take the alternative? Mm -hmm. It's a growing number that would take Bitcoin. Well, that may be, but I think that they're in the know. You know, it's the question of what would the masses do? What would most people do? And right now, on any given day, the amount of world trade is somewhere between five and a half and six and a half trillion dollars every day in the world. That's the number of transactions. Mm -hmm. And right now, 90% of it is in U.S. dollars. Even China, China has to deal. I mean, they're trying to... They're trying to over replace. Yeah. The operative word there is trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying. But the problem is that the countries they've put together are all export countries. And export countries have very little control over their currency. 
90% of the U.S. economy is inside the United States. So the GDP is 24 trillion, somewhere in that neighbor. 90% of that is Americans just dealing with Americans. Only 10% is with foreign trade, import, export, and half of it, 5%, is with Mexico and the Mexico and Canada. So the U.S. only deals with the rest of the world, 5% of GDP. And they don't really care what people do with the American dollar outside of the United States because, you know, it's twice as much. The amount of dollars outside the United States is twice as much. As a matter of fact, there are more $100 bills in the world than $1 bills. Wow. You know, <laughs> That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the big thing is that you have an entire governmental system supporting the currency. You have the U.S. Navy, U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Marine Corps <laughs> backing it up. But the thing is, there can only be one. Everything else is a speculative investment. I think Bitcoin is a speculative investment. Goes up, goes down, uses a lot of energy. <laughs> no, Bitcoin goes up and down relative to the dollar. Yeah. And the dollar goes up and down relative to Bitcoin. No. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so it goes up and down depending on how Peter's feeling that day. <laughs> so let's talk about your new book title. The Great Meltdown. I Great it. Meltdown. And it's 2020 to 2050. All right. So MELT is an acronym in this case. Yeah. M stands for money. E stands for energy. energy L is labor. Yeah. And T is what? Transportation. So let's jump into that. So your view is a look at each of these. Money, we've talked about a little bit. And I should say this, they're interactive. They're totally interactive with each other. Yeah, I think... Each is influencing the other three. Yeah, and each is changing, right? So money, there is digital money, you know, and fiat money. And then, you know, I'm not going to go and talk about the gold standard, but energy is important. Energy, I think about, you know, money is a form of energy that enables you to digitize energy and transport it and do things with it, right? And so we're having a revolution in energy right now, both in terms of the total amount of oil. I mean, the U.S. has now pumped more oil out of the ground this year than I think in any year ever in human history. But at the same time, this year, the majority of our new electrical capacity is all solar, and we had the first breakthroughs in fusion this past year. Yeah. So energy's got a lot of potential changes coming. Yeah. And there's a direct correlation between how well a nation or populace thrives and its access to energy, direct correlation. Well, they also is whether they're a producer of energy or they're an importer of energy. Mm -hmm. For example, China has to import 80% of its energy. Okay. It has to import close to 85% of the components of their food supply. And that's all done by water. That's all done by water. They have to bring the oil in by water. You know, and they're big on coal. They're the big coal producer. So the U.S. is, for all practical purposes, except for future contracts that they've signed, doesn't really need anybody's energy. I mean, they can produce any amount of energy. 
But the interesting thing about is if you take the alternative fuels, I was checking the IEA, which is... Uh, I'm familiar. Yeah. yeah. 1990, the total amount of energy created by fossil fuels was 80%. Okay. Last year, it was 82%. Mm-hmm. So trillions of dollars put into solar power into wind power and alternatives and what's also true is that the total amount of gigawatts of solar and other renewables has increased our energy consumption has gone up tremendously across the country around the world yeah 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 so the big thing is that with fracking the supply of energy is almost unlimited because Right at the moment right now, we're getting to the point where they don't need water. They don't need sand. They're using microwaves now. They estimate that the amount of reserves in the United States that haven't even been touched yet, the big problem being the transportation of water and the transportation of sand, there's about 300 years at present consumption. For fracking or for what purposes? For fracking. Yeah, Yeah, for fracking. Mm -hmm. You know. The oil of fracking is so pure that they have to dilute it by combining it with crude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to make it dirtier to be useful around the world. So my sense is that I believe solar will be a component, but there aren't that many places in the world where you get good solar. As a matter of fact, one of the best places is Northwest Texas. It's also one of the best wind areas of the world and just south of it are some of the biggest oil fields and texas has it all uh, texas just your energy you're in california you want to move to texas i'll tell you <laughs> or florida uh, as we found out last week with the governor of california not answering any of the questions about what's happened in california <laughs> well i'm going to stay away from the politics so the next thing is labor and labor politics, Peter. <laughs> yeah, uh, labor is a fascinating subject. You know, yesterday I recorded a podcast on my Moonshots podcast with the CEO of a robotics company called Figure. Mm-hmm. And this is Brett, who's previously the CEO of one of the autonomous aircraft companies called Archer Aviation. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about what is coming with the future of labor. So Brett Adcock has built a company that's building a five foot eight humanoid robot that is able to effectively do anything a human can. Mm -hmm. His goal is a million of these by 2030. And his prediction, and I've heard this from Elon and from multiple others, is we will be having by 2050 which is infinitely away, by the way, for predicting, but more robots on the planet than humans. The prediction is 10 billion humanoid robots. Mm -hmm. You know, you will own a robot before you own a car. Robots will be in your place of work, at your home. So the labor, I think, is 50% of the global GDP. I think it's like $40 trillion. And this is a massive challenge coming. Yeah. So what do you think about labor? What do you think about? Well, first of all, the last three years are the greatest period of industrial growth in U.S. history. Three and a half million new 
industrial jobs over the last three years. Mm -hmm. But this is not the kind of labor you had 25 or 30 years ago in the industrial sector. This is entirely new. And it's human automation teamwork. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some trades. I mean, the, we were talking about welding before we went on. Welding is still largely, as a matter of fact, when we get a little further into this particular topic, it was very interesting who the most endangered people are in the workplace as a result of AI. It's four-year graduates of universities who have learned how to create meetings that plan their next meetings, <laughs> which can all be replaced by an AI app, yeah. okay? But the trades, welding, carpentry, plumbing, are not being replaced so easily, okay? But those trades are using the AI as components for how it becomes organized, you know, the entire structure, the infrastructure of how welders show up, where they show up, and everything. So my sense is the future is human automated teamwork. Okay, so if you're only human, and you're not doing automation teamwork, you are going to be replaced by the person who does it. Yeah, the, the term cobots has been coined in the past. And of course, in the AI world, it's co-pilots. But cobots are robots working with humans. Hmm. You know, one of the conversations I had with Brett, I'm just finishing up the chapter in my next book, Age of Abundance. And we were talking about why robots are important. And of course, doing the jobs that are dull, dangerous, and dirty are important. But he said something else that I had never heard before, and it struck me. He said, you know, we're reaching a point where computers are beginning to tell humans what to do. You've got an iPad, and the iPad says, go to that station, pick up this thing, and put it over there in that station. And you're following, as a laborer, you're following the instructions of this AI. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get very unsettling and unnerving if we have AGI, artificial general intelligence, telling mm -hmm. us humans what to do. Mm -hmm. He said, we need to have robots so that the AIs can, you know, mm -hmm. sort of control the robots and not have them controlling the humans. Yeah. So can you go in a little bit for me and also for our listeners here, what AGI is. Sure. So unless you're sitting under a rock or you've been off planet for a few years, you are pretty clear that we're living in a period of massive AI growth. And it really is a result of compute, data, capital, people working on AI is exploding. And AI today in the form of GPT-4, and then ChatGPT, BARD, and what's coming soon from Google, Gemini, and all the other general pre-trained transformer companies, it's pretty damn good. I recorded a conversation I was having with somebody on a AI documentary. I went and had the recording transcribed, and then I put that recording, which was like a 40-minute conversation, into ChatGPT, and I said, would you turn this into a scene-by-scene -scene outline for a film? Mm -hmm. And it did amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it parsed everything and it did an amazing job. And so if AI was just that, it would be fine. But AGI, artificial general intelligence, is a point at which AI can do anything a human can do mm -hmm. as good or better. Mm -hmm. Ray Kurzweil 
1999, he wrote a prediction that by 2029, 30 years hence, we would have AGI. He's held to that prediction. Mm -hmm. Elon's recent prediction is 2028. The head of NVIDIA's prediction has also been 2028. And so that means that sometime in the next five years, we're going to have AI, which is capable of doing anything a human's doing. Except one. <laughs> well, we'll come to that. And then the next year, it's ASI, artificial superintelligence. So the question is, except which one, Dan? I asked Ray the question, and he didn't know. Okay. So when we were at Mountain View uh -huh. in 2011, so when our first inkling of A360. Yes, our first year. It was called putting butts in seats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Ray made the prediction just more or less along the lines that you just made it. And I went up to it. I said, Ray, are you talking about consciousness? And he says, no one knows what consciousness is. And I follow that. I've got a file on my computer, and I've been following it ever since I had a computer that could have a file. And there's no understanding what consciousness is. Okay? It's not calculation. We know it's not calculation. So it doesn't matter how fast the calculation gets. It doesn't create consciousness. And consciousness is thinking about your thinking, okay? And most people only think about their thinking, usually in crisis moments, okay? And thinking is you're just observing how you're thinking, and you're suddenly finding breakthroughs in how you think. And there's no indication whatsoever that machines can do that. Thus far. Yeah, yeah. Some Monday, three or 4,000 years in the future, there may be consciousness. And the problem is behind every computer program is a human being who's operating out of consciousness. Well, that used to be true. It's no longer because you can have AIs actually self-generating computer programming. Yeah, according to an algorithm. Well, according to an objective function. Yeah. Meaning if the AI needs to create a program to gather data, it's because it needs that someplace else. Yeah. It will be able to generate that program to go and achieve that goal. But it doesn't know what it's doing. This is currently true. Yeah. And the reason is that humans don't calculate, they create meaning out of their aspirations. So, for example, you have 8 billion people on the planet, and they're all aspiring to something that was not detectable before this morning. So my feeling about big data is that big data every once in a while did a good job predicting what happened yesterday. But what got created today among 8 billion human beings mm -hmm. is completely undetectable and unmeasurable. Uh, we're going to see. I mean, it's interesting. Both GPT-4 and Google's BARD, a group of scientists, did an experiment to see how weather prediction would do. This is out of DeepMind, Google, and out of OpenAI. They nailed 11-day forecasts. Yeah, I believe that. That's measurable because weather is increasingly measurable. Yes, but increasingly complex. And so they also just put out some predictions on where Bitcoin would be by end of year. So I'm super curious how they'll do on that. Well, my feeling is the future at all times 
now, in the past, and in the present, is all guessing and betting. I think a lot of the technological world is betting on the bet. It's not even betting on the product. Perhaps. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting conversation that I'm following amongst the CEOs. We're on the topic of labor here, by the way. Oh, okay. I was about to head (laughs) off into AI. We'll come back to that. No, I think AI, I mean, we're already using it. We had an AI coach come in. All of our team went through a six, two-hour module. And what the goal is, everything that can be improved 20% over the next 12 months. Okay, and there's hundreds and hundreds of little jobs in the company. And, you know, and if your productivity goes up 20% per year as a company, it's pretty good. You just multiply that year after year after year. But it's teamwork, AI, because all of our team, 130 members, operate according to the concept of unique abilities. So every year we have them narrow down what's your unique ability and then do two things, find out the who, other human who that you can team up with, and now add AI to that. What's the AI who that you can rely on? But it's always specific in the next quarter and what you can do the next quarter. And my observation right now, that's how all humans that I deal with are operating. Hmm. How are you feeling in the great AI debate that's going on right now? There's a lot of conversation around we should move AI as fast as possible, accelerate it. It's the most important tool we have. And there's a large group out there that says AI is dangerous. And in the next five years, we may see the end of humanity, the sort of the accelerationists and the doomers. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. I would ask the same question about electricity. When's the good time to get to push electricity as far forward as you possibly can? I think my feeling is that each individual is doing it on their own for their own purposes. If it wasn't AI threatening the future of the human race, it would be something else. I think climate change has pretty well lost all of its gas right now. Nobody's really interested in talking about that. Okay, so my sense is that there's a paranoia, a general paranoia, that if you weren't worried about one thing, you'd be worried about another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm totally, I mean, first of all, it's going to happen. I mean, if it's really useful, it's going to happen. Oh, it's happening. It's really useful. Well, and it's, it's not happened. like anybody's in charge of this. So you're not. I mean, Google got blindsided by OpenAI. They were doing long weekends and late hours after ChatGPT. They thought they were going to be in charge of the AI game, and they're not. Nobody's in charge of it. So you're not concerned that we're going to see. Well, I guess, listen, when I think about this, I think about. I know it's not going to happen over the next 13 years. Why not? Because we have a 25 year agreement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're, we're only in year 12, Peter. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, what Dan's uh, referring to is... We've already got the dates put in the calendar for our exponential yes. wisdom. I mean, uh, I know it can't possibly happen in the next 13 years. Yes, when I launched Abundance 360, my CEO Entrepreneur Summit and program, Dan suggested I commit to running it for 25 years. And so I ran on stage and said, and I'm doing this for the next 25 years, which was a transformative moment to sort of know that every March, every year, I'm running this summit for the members. Yeah. And we are in year 12. And yes, we're halfway mark 13 years ago. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because that 25-year horizon also 
sort of correlates with what Ray Kurzweil calls, you know, the singularity. Yeah. So it's like my job is to guide people through the coming tech transformation. Yeah. I don't think there's such a thing as general intelligence, okay? For example, if you look at intelligence in the world, we don't take into account that all of nature is different forms of intelligence. I mean, photosynthesis is a form of intelligence, okay? I've got squirrels in my yard that can plant a thousand acorns somewhere, and I defy any human being to actually have the intelligence to know that, you know? So my sense is we live in a vast world of intelligence. We just, we identify intelligence as being sort of related to human thinking, but there's all kinds of thinking going on in the world. And the, think of your house. I mean, I can't outthink the, my thermostat in my house. First of all, I'm ADD. I would lose track of it really quickly. <laughs> so my sense is this whole thing of intelligence, it's all intelligence. Why the moon is related to the Earth and the way it well, is. Those are laws of physics. Yeah, well, laws um, of physics. There were no laws of physics until humans identified the laws. I drive people crazy who are on the, we're destroying the planet side. And I said, well, we created the planet. And they said, what do you mean? I said, there wasn't a planet until we gave it a name. Hmm. Nature, I said, we created nature. You know, we're, it's an idea and everything like that. So I think there's two worlds here. There's the world of making up meaning, which each of us does every day. And then there's measuring the meaning that we made up. And that's the realm of machines, because machines are better at measuring than humans are. Hmm. We were on L for labor. Yeah. So here's my sense. In the United States and countries aligned, and I think there's about 12 countries aligned to the United States. That's all? That matter. Okay. Okay. So, for example, here's a form of alignment. Japan, 30 years ago, hit a wall. And the reason is they were running out of people. I mean, they've been running out of people now for 30 years. And what they realized is they had to move all their manufacturing to the country where people were buying their products. So Japan started moving their factories to each of the countries where they had customers for its products. And my sense is that that's going to happen a lot. And as a matter of fact, I think within 10 years, the United States won't be charging tariffs on other people's products. They'll require that if you want to sell your product in the United States, you move your factory to the United States and you hire Americans. Mm -hmm. Sounds a good idea. Yeah. Well, it's already happening. The U.S. South, where they don't have unionization, required unionization, none of the foreign car makers are in the union states. They're only in the states where they have right to work. The other thing is politics is really a big deal. I know a lot of people don't like, but politics is how you work out things without violence. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know, some politics instigate violence from my recent memory, but that's a different story. I mean, the United States is very contentious, but the United States has always been contentious. Right from the beginning, it was contentious. So I see what's happening in the US right now is pretty well the Americans, the way Americans work out. You pick a side and you, I try to be not neutral on any topic. <laughs> I strive, but you know, 
We're not shooting each other for that reason. We're not shooting each other for political reasons. But my sense is that the U.S. is the most highly trained workforce in the world. And I think that the U.S. will do the best job of any country of using technology to keep the cost of money down, to keep the cost of energy down, to keep the cost of labor down. And I'm talking in terms of productivity and profitability. And we're all constrained by melt. I mean, it's the laws of human gravitation. But transportation is the big one. Yeah, I was literally writing about it this morning, going back, you know, human footsteps for the first transportation yeah. over the last three million years. And, and typically during a particular season, some tribes would relocate hundreds of kilometers. Yeah. We then, what, like 3,000 years ago, domesticated the horse. Around the same time, we created the wheel, comes the horse and buggy, and the oxen was domesticated. And then the train comes on, the steam engine and the train yeah. in the turn of the last century. Yeah. But the one before that, we domesticated water. Waterways, sure. Waterways. It's interesting. They now have anywhere between 12,000 and 20,000 years ago, North and South America were populated. They were not populated. As far as we know, they may have been in a previous geological age. Yeah, right. But every native person, indigenous person in North and South America comes from 12 Mongolians. The DNA comes from 12 Mongolians that crossed over what used to be a land bridge between Russia and Alaska. And within a matter of a thousand years, they were in Tierra del Fuego. That's they had a, made it all the way from Alaska down to the bottom. That's a lot of fornicating. <laughs> well, fornicating, but they had to do it by water because they, oh, okay. I mean, even now there's a 60 mile gap in the Trans-American Highway between North America and South America. It's between Colombia and Panama. Mm -hmm. There's a 60 mile gap that is just all swamps and jungle and they still haven't put the highway through so they were obviously using water to get around that mm. but the u.s is really interesting there are 200 ocean going ports in the world and 100 of them are in the united states fascinating yeah and that includes the river system the mississippi river system has 87 rivers and they have 60 internal ports where if you put something there, you can be across the ocean within a week. Amazing. Yeah. So they have this amazing water system. And then, of course, they have great highway system. They have great train system. They have 5,000 airports that can be retrofitted right now for cargo. So my sense is the United States is the proof that life's not fair. <laughs> There's three rules. Everything's made up. Nobody's in charge and life's not fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was lucky enough to be born in the U.S. Oh, yeah. My dad was lucky enough to be able to come to the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why did he do that? Because <laughs> my mom came to the U.S. And, she, and he followed her here. That's always a good reason. Yeah. Well, the A360 wouldn't exist anywhere because you more or less made some early attempts to start some of your organizations, not in the United States, and it was hard. Hmm. Yeah, I remember your French story. <laughs> oh my God, yes. My first university was called the International Space University, and I started it out of MIT, and we ended up 
getting going here and then decided we were going to go and move the university to countries around the world. In year two, we were going to move to Toulouse, France, <laughs> and we ended up in a conversation with the head of the the French space agency, Kness, and he's saying, you Americans want to bring your crazy ideas here to France. We're not going to support this. Anyway, long story short, we ended up not going to Toulouse for the second year. We ended up going to Strasbourg. And then five years later, Strasbourg won the bid for the central campus International Space University. So, yeah, but you just said something which I think is the number one fact in the world. You Americans just want to bring your crazy ideas. Yeah. Yeah, this is the source for crazy ideas on the planet. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I don't want to go into the space industry, which was my first love for the first 30 years, but what Elon has done with SpaceX. Falcon 9, Starship, Starlink, and Starlink, yes, it's literally run circles around every government agency and every other aerospace company on the planet. It's what a single individual driven by passion, technology, living in a free nation can do. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I say regarding the labor, because I want to get to transportation, okay? Right now, there's an enormous shift away from four years of university learning a skill that is not going to be sellable, okay? That I think you'll see a collapse probably of half the higher educational institutions in the United States over the next 10 or 20 years, unless they do a radical shift in how they're preparing people for the future. I agree. It's awful. Well, it's not awful. It's just... It's a waste of money. Well, yeah, but it was less a waste of money when you were doing it in the 1980s, yeah. 1970s, 1980s. It was less. And every year it becomes more a waste of money. I don't know what the statistics were from 22 to 23, but between 21 and 22, incoming freshmen in the United States, college freshmen, all universities, four-year degree granting university, there were four million fewer students. My sense is that the universities are feeling very, very desperate about this right now. And my sense is that they were preparing people for a world and economy that no longer exists. And I think parents are looking at this. I think parents are looking at this. I think teenagers are looking at this. But it's a shift. There was no educational system until the Industrial Revolution started. Mm -hmm. There was no need to do it. And then it went through massive growth as industrialization changed. But once the microchip came in, you were onto a new world. And I think the universities were so entrenched. I mean, a real example of this is the beginning of an actual healthcare system, and you're in the forefront of that. People said, healthcare is terrible. I said, there is no healthcare system. There's a disease management system. Yes, a sick care system. Yes. Four times more people are living off cancer than are dying of cancer. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, but it's the way things are. How would you like to wrap this episode? Well, transportation is really the big one. I feel that the number one changer of things is actually transportation because the world still consists of shipping atoms. Mm -hmm. So in 2019, the cost of transportation, the percentage of final product of any product in the world was 1%, was 
the cost of transportation. Mm. It's up to 3% now, and that's the profit margin. The difference between 1% and 3% is the profit margin. Fascinating. And that's a result of inefficiencies? And the U.S. deciding not to protect trade routes. You can't believe how powerful the U.S. Navy is. You know, and people say, well, China, China's got more boats than all the yacht clubs in New York City. Most of them can't go more than 100 miles offshore. There's three deep water navies in the world. The U.S. is number one. Japan is number two. And Great Britain is number three. There are no other deep water navies in the world. And deep water means that you can go anywhere on the planet with impact. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese, a lot of people don't know this, the U.S. cut off all military buildup in Japan after 1945, but not the Navy. Mm. And so the Japanese, the Americans, and they're all on the same side, politically, economically. So how is this increasing costs of transport? Insurance. Mm. For example, Russia, you can't ship anything into Russia or outside Russia and get insurance on it. Yep. Yeah, well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It is. It is. You know, when I think about transportation, I think about the coming transportation revolution, which is autonomous vehicles, electric vehicle takeoff or landing, drones, things which we're going to take humans out of the loop and operate with super high efficiency. Yeah. And these are, I mean, what you're speaking about is long haul transport versus local distribution networks? Well, it all depends. <laughs> if you're living in Hawaii, it's all water. <laughs> yeah. But the world is very uneven in its relationship. The countries of the world are very uneven in relationship to money, how much money costs. I'm not a great believer in cyber currency or Cryptocurrency, right. Uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. because I don't understand it. I don't bet on things that I don't understand. But where the digital has really made the impact is the removal of the middlemen who are each taking a little bit. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that everywhere you have two or three and sometimes up to five or six middlemen between the desire to have a transaction and actually having a completed transaction, they're renters. They don't create any value, but you can't get further unless you go through the toll gate. And my sense is that AI is going to one of the biggest, fastest growing industry in the in the world is fintech. But the U.S. is miles ahead of every other country in terms of fintech. So here's the thing, Peter, the country's ability to innovate new solutions related to MELT makes it the lowest cost country on the planet. Mm. The vast number of countries have no control over their melt factors. Mm -hmm. I see that. I see that. What do you think? Do you think it's a good book? I think it's a great thesis. I have to read the book to tell you if it's a great book. Yeah. But for me, it is technology that's going to hit all four of those, right? In a significant fashion. Yeah. And we are reinventing all four of those. Yeah. Now, here's my thesis that where you want to put your investment money is in technologies that are mm -hmm. directly related to the four melt issues. Mm -hmm. Sure. Those are going to be the huge payback investments. I like that. I like that. With one exception. Well, and it's actually not an exception. It's longevity and age reversal. Mm. 
And the reason is we're going to have to have 75, 80, 90 year olds in the workforce. Hmm. Should we talk about that as our next episode? Yeah. The U.S. is leading the world in this of people not retiring at 65. Love it. Love it. Well, what do you think as a wrap up on what we did here? I think the concept of money, energy, labor, and transport as fundamental to a nation's success and fundamental to an economy's success and being driven by technology is a thesis makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to think about it some more. Love it. All right, buddy. I'll see you in our next episode. Yeah. Yeah. One of these years, you'll have me as a guest speaker at A360. One of these years.